2 Kings chapter 5, as we're going through the book of Kings, Luke chapter 4, as Jesus gets the Pharisees a little fired up. Look what he says there in Luke 4, 27. Actually, if you follow this this through, they're ready to take him off the hill and throw him, throw him overboard. But he says, and many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet... There are many of them, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And that's where we are in 2 Kings chapter 5 as Jesus once again validates the Old Testament. And it says here in 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, this Syria is the same geographical location of Syria that's in the news all the time, he was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. And here's why. Because by him, the Lord had given him victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor. That title here, mighty man of valor, we see it seven times in the scriptures. But here, God has a point to a Gentile. And it's not a Gentile being killed. It gets pointed to guys that are going to get killed. But but here it's pointed to a Gentile that God doesn't kill him. And no doubt, Naaman had everything he wanted. Fame, fortune, babes, but he was a leper. You know, and leprosy would start with maybe what we might call, I don't know, spots, a rash. And then it would affect your joints, your, your fingers, your, your toes, your nose. And, you know, probably the fingernails pop first or everything pops at the same time. Your toes start popping off, your fingers start popping off. Maybe the nose would fall off. I would think people would want to isolate themselves from you no matter how powerful you are. No one would want to be around you. But here he is. He's the commander of the army of Syria. No doubt he was a... He was a... Interesting uh, guy leading the soldiers out to battle as they would come upon opposing forces. Now, keep in mind that leprosy in Syria is way different than leprosy is in Israel. In Israel, if you had leprosy, you were, you were unclean. But not so in Syria, and certainly not so in our day-to-day. -day. There are many wealthy men and women who have it all in our world today. But they are lepers, and they are separated from God, and they don't even realize it. Please notice who directs the affairs of men here, please. I'm sure he was a mighty man of valor, but that's not why he won this battle against Israel. Look what it says. It says, very clearly, the Lord God Almighty brought him this victory, as God uses him to bring judgment upon the northern tribes of Israel, upon his people. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive, a, a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Please notice how the story just shifted to this young girl who was separated from her family. Did the Syrians kill her family? And then grab the girl? I don't know. Did the girl happen to be in the wrong place at the right time? We don't know, but we do know this. 
She's not going to allow the situation that she's in or the circumstances that she's in to cause her to be bitter. So, Christian, whenever you find yourself in situations, it's always to grow. But if you want to be bitter, you better come and look at this gal right here. She lost everything. She's young. You could say she's on a foreign mission trip. She, there's never a hint of bitterness, only blessing. It's a, it's a, she becomes a radical New Testament picture of New Testament theology here, or an Old Testament picture of New Testament theology here. Then she said to her mistress, you know, it's not, man, I want to watch this guy's face rot off. That's not what she says here. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, this young, unknown girl, she knew about Elijah. Maybe or obviously she came from a godly family. I mean, she seems to be totally in the know, and she's God's instrument for such a time as this. And yet you want to see a graphic picture of what Jesus commanded his bride to be about? This girl's going to show us. Jesus puts it in word, word form, this time from Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus speaking, and I want to remind you, you and me, that when Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he's speaking to Old Testament people, right? Has he resurrected yet? No. Nope. Well, how much more are you and me? You know, it's in the New Testament, it's written after the resurrection, but he spoke it when these people were under the law. I don't know what to make of that. It was just popped. I've never thought of it that way, but it just popped in, in me as I was thinking about this. And this is how he wrote to them. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your your neighbor and hate your enemy. That that's what that's what they that was kind of their their rule of the road. But I say to you, love your enemies. So if he's saying that to the Old Testament, how much more you and I in the New Testament? But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Boy, the church has a lot to, to learn here, right? And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And here's why. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Jesus spoke all of that pre-resurrection. And that is what this young girl is doing here. She is seeking the best for the one who has taken her captive away from her family. Not seeking ill will on him. There is not a hint of that at all. But chosen by God, for God knows her heart, and she becomes God's tool here. Because there's no doubt about it, Jesus is going to speak about this guy, so Jesus needs this guy healed. And there she is. The amazing thing about her knowledge is this. No one has ever been healed in Israel before of leprosy. It's not happened. I mean, sure, uh, Miriam, when she went out and said, hey, you know, uh, God, we think we should be in charge, uh, me and Aaron. Okay, but that wasn't really leprosy. That was God's ju quick judgment upon her, and she got it right back. But no, no <laughs> leper has ever been healed in is all of Israel before. And yet she's saying, a young gal says, hey, look, you got to get to the prophet, man. He'll heal you. Pretty amazing. 
She is positive that God can heal him. That doesn't come from a bitter heart, but a forgiving heart. A heart that's heard things from her mom and dad. No doubt the mistress may waste no time in talking to her man once she hears what this young girl has to say. And Naaman wastes no time either. Look at verse 4. As he went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who's from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now. I mean, certainly he's going to get his commander back 100%. And I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. First off, it makes sense to me that the Syrian king would write a letter to the king of Israel because remember, the king of Israel has all those false, very vocal false prophets. So, I mean, I think that's who he's thinking about. Keep in mind, this is the same king of Syria that a few years earlier had told his 32 captains, don't fight with anyone but the king of Israel, who was Ahab at the time. Remember, that's the same battle where Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, why don't you put on your royal robes and I'll just kind of disguise myself as one of the G.I. Joes and I'll just blend in, but you can kind of lead us into battle. And remember, the Syrian king is told his guys, don't go after anybody unless, unless it's the king. Well, the Syrian king's now directing his commander to go to Samaria. The captain the capital of the northern kingdom and seek some help for his leprosy. The very ones that they were seeking to kill, and they did. Remember the random guy drew his bow at random? Just Some commentators say Naaman was that random guy. I, I don't know. It does. People say all kinds of stuff, but, you know, it's like, that. Is that true? I mean, I have no idea. But what's interesting is the Syrian king is going, look, I'm going to write you a letter to that king. But here's what. I don't see any treaty anywhere. I looked in Chronicles. I don't, there's, you know, you have the enemy of Israel coming to the king of Israel seeking to be healed. There's a lot going on that we're not aware of. I couldn't find anything. So Naaman departed and took with him his letter and 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. Doesn't say the king gave it to him, so he's, he is wealthy. I mean, if you're the commander, certainly you're going to get your cut out of the spoils. If Mr. Haley is right, he says a shekel is a half an ounce, so Naaman has 3,000 ounces of gold with him, or 187 and a half pounds, and on today's market value, he's packing 3,900,000. Not bad, not bad pay for a doctor's visit. And that's only the gold. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, who is King Jehoram, who is Ahab's son, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I've been Hadad, you know, the one we, you know, I've been in battle with your dad, have sent Naaman, my servant, to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. Now, the pagan king of Syria totally does not understand how things work in Israel, does he? But this pagan king of northern Israel does. Look at his response to someone asking him to heal somebody, and we want to learn from it. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter. He tore his clothes. He's it's like, I'm not taking any credit for this. And he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? You know, King Jehoram is totally living a godless lifestyle. But maybe King Jehoshaphat has rubbed off on him a little bit. I think we see that as we go down through this. 
And he does really the only thing he can do. He tears his clothes. Man, it's not me. I don't heal. Are you trying to get me killed? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks to quarrel with me. But what is sad here is the king knows to tear his robe, but he doesn't know that there's a God in Israel that can heal today. It seems like he has no thought of sending him to Elisha in the same city that he's ruling from. And no doubt as Naaman comes to Israel, he's not coming by himself. If he's packing 3.9 million in gold plus silver and some high-end clothing, I mean, certainly, you know, some of those clothes today are pretty high-end. He's got soldiers with them, servants with them. And so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. I mean, obviously, everyone saw him all come to town. Word travels back. Elisha sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. King, seeing that you've forgotten about the God of your fathers, King Jehoram just settled down and send him to me. There's still true prophets that heal. Send him away. So Naaman, verse 9, went with his horses and chariot. He stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, not quite giving honor that the big man was used to. And the messenger gave him simple instructions. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. We I mean, no doubt his flesh is presently being eaten away by the, the leprosy. Now, this will take sim simple faith for Naaman to be able to accomplish that. Faith is walking out God's word when it doesn't make sense to you. But it's not blindly locking it out. But, but I mean, you know Jesus is leading you, so you just got to do it. Well, we all know Naaman's a strategic battle planner. He's the commander of the armies. And, and so no doubt he has strategically already planned this whole battle out with leprosy. Look what it says there in verse 11. But Naaman became, became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, and you know what? That will always get you in trouble. I said to myself, this is how he's going to do it. He's going to come out to me as I'm sitting in my big studly chariot, and he's going to stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and he's going to wave his hand all over the place and heal the leprosy. Well, that's Naaman, the strategic battle planner, talking. That's the man of valor. He's planned out this whole battle, but when you come to Jesus, you have to come to him on his terms. You can't come on yours. You only come to, you only come to Jesus on your terms before you get saved. Lord, if you get me out of this, God, if you get me out of this, I'll turn to you. And he, he never does. And so you, and you go, well, that's why I'm not turning. And you keep going. You got to come to Jesus on his terms. But do we ever think this way? We plan out how Jesus will do it. I think we all have at least one time. Maybe some of you still do. We think we know how God's going to work some situation now. We got it all figured out. And then Jesus doesn't work it that way. It's pretty easy to do. In my first year of a Christian, of being saved, well-meaning Christians would tell me this is going to happen. But you know what? It never happened. I got let go for 
sharing the gospel with, to my JW boss with his JW Bible. And it turned out he was an elder in his cult and he had guys working for him from his kingdom hall. And so he let me go. Well, well-meaning Christians told me, man, God's going to bless you with a better paying job because you were faithful on that job. And I'm going, all right. And so I already started figuring out I'm going to stay, pay off all my bills. <laughs> I got a job, no problem. That was never a problem for me, but it was, wasn't like what they said. And it got to where I would say, if you cannot use your Bible and you're going to tell me something, keep your opinions to yourself. That's what I, it happened to me three times, and so after that, that was my answer. If you can't, if you're telling me this and you can't prove it, I don't want to hear it. I got so close to walking away from the church because of well-meaning Christians telling me something that they, you know, and, and I'm believing them because I'm a new Christian. It's, it's crazy. I think of how close I got. It's all because people were going to tell me how God was going to do it, just like Naaman here. So team, if, if it's a word from the Lord, share it. If it's your opinion, or this is how God worked in your life in, in this situation, hey, I don't care if you share that. Just tell them God's probably not going to, no, don't tell them probably. Just tell them God's not going to work that way in your life. I'm sure he's got other plans. But don't tell them, hey, this is how God worked in my life. This is how God's going to work in your life. Don't do that. You're not the Holy Ghost. You don't know. But do tell them God will work. Show them the promises. Point it out. Don't box Jesus in. Let him, be, let him be Lord. As we go through our daily lives, stay away from seeking to figure out how the Lord is going to take care of you. And for those of you who do that in your daily life, I guarantee you it rubs off on your spiritual life. You're going to figure it out. Well, I'm going to do this. And if they do that, I'm going to do this. And if he says that, I'm going to do that. Hey, that may be your worldly life, but I guarantee you, you bring that right into your spiritual walk with Jesus. Don't do that. God doesn't want you to strategically plot and plan how if they say this, I'm going to say this. No, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. You know, a long time ago, the Lord made it really clear to me that he was going to take care of me and my family independent of what was placed in the box in the hallway. And that was 18 years ago. So it may bother the counters that count, but not me because Jesus is my provider. And ladies, your husband is not your provider. Jesus is. Always has been. So no matter what happens, he will always take care of you. So please just stay away from seeking to figure out how Jesus is going to work in your life. Oswald Chambers wrote, the day you think you know how Jesus will work in your life is the day he'll never work that way in your life again. I don't know if that's true, but it's good enough for me. I don't want to box God in and lose options here. I'm thinking, I don't know where you can prove that biblically, but it sounds good. Okay, I'll just, <laughs> okay, God, just work this way. I, I know you're going to work this way. None of us wants to limit God's options for us or for our family. Well, fuming Naaman, verse 12, are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He's missing it, is he? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Yep, you could, great man of valor. You could be clean, but you would still have leprosy. So you have all this gold and people with you packing the gold and 
Elisha, Elisha, Elisha doesn't even come out and meet him? And you're telling me this is, there's only one river for me to be clean in? Yeah, there's only one way to be saved. And I'm not going to be ashamed about that. There is one. And you better possess it or you're not getting in. There's one. And Naaman's totally fired up. So he turned and went away in a rage. I, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thank God for people in my life who've called me down by speaking truth to me. That's, that's what his servants are going to do here. So it was his servants, and I like these guys, and people like this who speak truth into my life. His servants came near and spoke to him, said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So are you telling me if I believe in Jesus, I will go to heaven? Yeah, if you turn to him, your sin will be forgiven and heaven will be yours. Well, that's too easy. What's the catch? A guy said that to me one time. I said, okay, well, would you like the other plan? He said, yeah. I said, okay. Go out on the I-45 at 7.30, park your car on the shoulder, and get out in the middle lanes, dodging cars, look up and say, Jesus, I believe, come into my heart and be my Lord. Okay, go do it. And the guy goes, okay, I get your point. <laughs> I mean, hey, I can make it as complicated as you want. You got to stand on your head, you know, for five minutes, and you got to jump in a pool underwater for two. And, you know, if you come up early, man, you ain't going to get it, you know, I mean. God's ways are not burdensome. You know, one of the greatest truths for us as believers when the pressure is on like it is for Naaman is what Jesus told his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 11 when he said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. What, what do you have to do to receive that benefit of Jesus? you got to come. That's all he's got to do. He's just got to simply go into the water just, just like a person has to do today. You have to come. But it's not simple, because you have to give up. You have to turn away from your thing, that thing that's that's calling you, saying, "Don't do it, don't do it." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's what Naaman's going to find here if he'll do this the, the only way. And what do you have to do to receive that benefit of Jesus? You got to yoke yourself up to Jesus and learn from Him. And then Jesus says, "My yoke is easy, my burden is light." And as the servants talk to Naomi, he starts to settling down. He's listening to his servants. And he is going to discover that the yoke of Jesus is light, or is easy, and it's burning his light. So he goes to the Jordan. I wonder how excited he is about going. I wonder if he is joyful, cheerful. I wonder if he's driving very fast. Doesn't say. But he went and dipped seven times in the muddy Jordan, because it's muddy. It's not clean. It's muddy. And I wonder what he thought when he dipped the first time. But he did it according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child as he came up the seventh time, and he was clean. Now, can you imagine how excited he must have been? I mean, he sees his fingers and his toes restored before his eyes. All his body parts that were starting to eat away, all of it's all put back together. I mean, can you imagine how excited the servants must have been? Because what if it didn't work out? <laughs> Man, they must have been really excited. 
Verse 15, and he returned to the man of God, about a 20-mile chariot ride. And he returns, just like one out of the 10 lepers. Remember in Jesus' day, Jesus says, wasn't there 10 healed, but only one returned, and he's a foreigner? Well, here's a foreigner coming back. And I suggest to you that, they, that he returned with the speed of the two men on the road to Emmaus after Jesus showed himself to them. And he's flying back there, certainly going back faster than when he came. The foreigner, here he comes to Elisha, way different in heart, mind, soul, everything than when he left. Because see, he left an unsaved person. He's coming back a saved man. There's no doubt in my mind he's going to be in heaven because of what God's doing in his life here. So here he comes, he and all his aides. I believe they busted into Elisha's house, it seems. Remember last time Elisha wouldn't come out? I think they just bust right into the house. And they came and stood before him. It doesn't say Elisha came out, so let's just imagine they busted in. And so here they are, they're standing before Elisha. Naaman said, indeed, now I know. It's one thing to know about, and there's, let's face it, a lot of people in the church that know about Jesus and know about God and know about the Bible and know about Calvary Chapel, know about the days of the tent, but they don't know him. You got to know him. And this, here's what he says. Now I know there is no God in all of the earth except in Israel. That's salvation. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. That's heart change. Before he is offering it so that he would do a magical trick, now he's giving it because it's like it has no value to him anymore. Plus, notice that word servant. Please take a gift from your servant. He's now Elisha's servant. He's no longer the commander of the Syrian army. He is, but he's, he's a servant of God first. And Christian, can I remind us, we are Christians first, and whatever we do for work, that's what we are second. I remind Christina and Chris that all the time. You are Christians first and cops second. Because in a cops world, you are cops first and everything else is second. Now, you've got to be Christian first. It's critical. It doesn't matter where, what we do, where we are, we're Christians first. You know, one day we're going to meet Naaman here. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will not, I will receive nothing. And he urged, and he urged him to take it, but he refused. Remember how much gold he has again? 3.9 million plus the close. Too bad the prophets of today do not learn from Elisha here, especially the ones on TV. <laughs> you know, what do they want? They want it all. So Naaman said then, if not, if you're not going to take my gold, I wish you would, I'd have more room then, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. I wish you'd take my gold, that way I could take four mule loads of earth, but hey, if you're not going to take my gold, can I at least take two? Can I take some of Israel home with me, take some dirt? For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but only to the Lord. But I'm going to stand on my dirt facing Israel and I'm going to worship the one true God. That's what he's saying here. Can you imagine Naaman coming home? Everyone is excited. He's got all his fingers and toes and his flesh is restored. But Naaman doesn't really care about that. He says, look, I want to show you my dirt. <laughs> hey, I want to tell you about my dirt. Had to been some interesting conversations there. 
Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. I'm not going to worship when I'm in there. I'm only there to help my master. Please notice, he is very aware of his sin now. That's salvation. He's already looking forward. He's counting the cost. He's running all these new scenarios through his mind that prior to dipping in the water, that was just normal life. He's been thinking about this new life in Christ. And that's what happens when the heart's changed. He's concerned about his actions now. And I love the response of Elijah here. No, yes, and no, no. There's no answer. At least not a no or a yes one. And then he said to him, go in peace. I like that answer. The Bible doesn't say. It's, it doesn't. And so he's saying, look, God will, I think what he's saying, look, God will sort it out. Because see, when God's word is silent, we must be silent. He's not bowing down. Doing his job there. I like the look. So Naaman departed from him a short distance. Really? Well, no, it's not a short distance to Syria. Well, the reason it is a short distance is because the same servant that was going, what? From last week, remember? they This guy brought the bread and Elisha told him to put it out. And Gehazi, the servant, goes, what? That's not going to feed all the people. There's something going on in his heart. Well, he's going to show his true colors right here, Gazi. You know, last week he was challenging Elisha's direction to him. Elisha said, put the bread out. What? This ain't going to feed everybody. But here, this really tells us what's going on in his life. And he, he, this is the guy that's been walking with Elisha. This would be the guy that's going to take his spot, just like Elisha was to Elijah. Remember? Elisha poured the water on Elijah's hands. He was a servant. Well, this is Elisha's servant. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, look, and that will always get us in trouble. Like, look, my master is godly and honorable and others seeking. Or look, my master hears things from God. Or look, God talks to him and reveals things to him. Or Look at what my master missed out on. No doubt he's looking at this whole situation the same way the prophets do on TV. I mean, all they want is your money. I mean, they've had some of the goofiest ideas and made some of the goofiest claims down through the years seeking to get your money. And they make these claims for one purpose, one purpose only, to extract dollars out of your pocket. Was anyone around when the guy said, look, uh, I think he went into the tower and said, look, God told me if you don't give me $7 million, I'm going to die. Anybody around during that time? One. Well, he didn't get the millions, and God did not kill him, but he did die in 2009. So if you want to look up Prophet 2009 dead, you might be able to Google and figure out who it is. But Gehazi's looking all of this at all, he's looking at all of this free money. To him, that's how he looks at it. And it's just too much for him to take in. And the more he looks at it, the more he's drawn away. Just like last time's Bible study at LinkedIn, 
James writes, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away. See, he's, God, he's looking at it, and it's, and it's calling his name. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That's what's going on in Gehazi's heart here. The servant of Elisha, the man of God, he says here with an evil heart, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, as he seeks, well, he, he seeks to make it spiritual. He's going to make it religious here. I am sure Elisha lived in below poverty levels. The house they lived in, I am certain, was below poverty levels. As he taught these younger prophets that it was not about the money or the fame, but the Lord would take care of them. So Gehazi somehow justifies in his heart that as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. I mean, after all, I've been faithful. I, I haven't got a paycheck, so I'm going to do something. He is totally coveting here. See that word take? I'm going to take something from him. That is what the average person in the world and probably many in the church think about the church today. They just want to take from you. But we know that's not what Jesus wants to do in their lives. He wants them to receive. But Gehazi with an evil heart, he wants to take something. So he pursued Naaman. And in doing so, he runs the risk of causing this new believer to stumble if the true reasons for his being there were to come out. I mean, you would. Naaman down the road finds out that Gehazi came there just to rip him off. Man, that's going to mess up your walk. So when Naaman saw him running after him, I love this, this is awesome. He got down from the chariot to meet him and hugged him because he's a new believer now and said, is all well. Can you see the two different types of hearts here? One is concerned about others. Is all well as he hugs him. The other is concerned about what he can take. Verse 22, because coveting always needs a companion. In this case, it's lying. And Naaman said, all is well, which is true, as he prepares his lies. My master has sent me, saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, please take two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments, and he handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. Please understand that the reason Naaman's servants are going with Gehazi is because a talent of silver is 100 plus pounds. So he's got 200 pounds of silver he's taken back. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand. I think that's outside the citadel. And he's taken it because he doesn't want it to be found out. So now he's packing 200 pounds of silver and some new clothes, hobbling down the road as he comes into the city. And he stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. And maybe he's, he's thinking he's done it, but he should be repenting. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to them, said to him, where did you go? As he get where did you go, Gehazi, as he gives him a chance to come clean? Just like Nathan did with David. 
God wanted David to come clean. I think God wants him to come clean here. But Gehazi, with a heart not like David, said, your servant didn't go anywhere. Kind of sounds like something your kids would say, right, when they're little. I don't know. <laughs> Who ate the last cookies? I don't know. They have crumbs all over their face. Then Elisha said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money? I like that. Gehazi went to take, but God receives tithes and offerings. Is it time to receive money? We know the love of money is the root of all evil. Is it time for you to receive clothing? And maybe this is what he was going to do with the money as Elisha calls him out and reveals his heart. Is it time for you to receive olive groves and vineyards? No doubt he had the money to buy it now. Sheep and oxen, male and female servants. Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So please notice what happens. Naaman takes on the life of Gehazi seeking the Lord. And Gehazi takes the place of leprous Naaman with some riches on the side. And he went out from his presence leprous, as white as snow. You might want to remember that. This servant of Elisha, full of leprosy, never going to be healed. Chapter 6. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there. And let us make there a place where we may dwell. Where we may dwell. We want to build a new place. We want to make it bigger. we got more students now. So he answered, go. So away they go with their axes to the forest to cut down some trees. And one of them said, please, Elisha, consent to come with us. And I like this. It seems like Elisha was willing to go, but he was waiting to be invited. He just didn't want to butt in. And he answered, I'll go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell in the water. You know, I think the head flew off the handle. Some guys go, well, it wasn't axes like we would think today. Okay, well, what in the heck was it if it went flying in the water? And he cried out and said, alas, master, for it was borrowed. Okay, I believe we get a great lesson on how we are to be when we borrow something from our neighbor. Because it would be real easy to say, oops, sorry, bro. Because it fell in the Jordan. That's mucky. You're never going to find it. Sorry, bro, you had a faulty axe. And man, you're lucky no one got hurt because, man, you could have been sued and then you could just walk away and never give the guy a new one. But didn't we borrow it? Shouldn't we return it in better condition than when we picked it up? I hope so. If we're supposed to think of others or more highly than ourselves. I think that's what we're going to learn here. Now, Jesus did say, if you lend, don't expect it back. But at the same time, he said, we're supposed to be a good neighbor. We're supposed to love our neighbors. So I think we should return it in better shape. So the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him his, the place. So Elisha cut off a stick and threw it in there. So I think the third time Elisha's done something by throwing something in there. He made the water bitter or that made the water better by throwing in the, the, the stick. He made the stew better by throwing in some flour. And now he throws a branch in here, and the iron floats. It's miraculous. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it out of the muddy Jordan River. And when he got done using it, he's able to return it. 
Now the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, the same one that sent Naaman to king of Israel to be healed, was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants. Now I don't know, I, I wonder if Naaman's in this group. He has his guys together saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. So they're making battle plans as the king of Syria lays it all out. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, and I, I love this look as well, saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down to it. I mean, this is all grace, mercy, and character of God stuff here. Because Jehoram is not walking with God. I mean, he's an idol worshiper. Yet God, because ultimately he's in charge, is showing grace and mercy upon this pagan king. But then that matches the scriptures. As Jesus said, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the Lord God is giving the king of the north the battle plans of the king of Syria and saying, look, don't go there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Why? Does it, does, is it because he doesn't believe him? Is it because he wanted to see the expression on the king of Syria's face when no one was there? Your pick. I personally picked because he didn't believe him. He doubted the word. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria, he's greatly troubled by this thing. He's, he, I got spies in my mix here. I got traitors. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, I don't, I don't believe this is Naaman. I, I think he's a worshiper of God at this time. He's like, look, I'm done doing the battle thing. I got no proof of that other than when we get to heaven. But this could be one of Naaman's servants. Remember, he, he, there was people with Naaman when he went to go see Elisha. And this could be one of Naaman's servants and not Naaman. One of his servants said, Oh, no, none, my Lord. There's no traitors here. Oh, king, but Elisha. He knows him by name. Ben-Hadad didn't know a prophet by name, but this servant, oh, he knows him by name. And said, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Hey, Ben-Hadad, your bedroom's bugged by the spirit. For the creator of the universe knows all things, even words spoken in bedrooms. I mean, that, that's, and so he said, hey, well, let's do something about it. Let's see where he is that I may send and get him. Yeah, good luck on that. And it was told him saying, surely he's in Dothan or about 12 miles north of Samaria. Therefore, King Ben-Hadad of Syria sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, this is a new servant, not Gehazi, he's out. Remember, he's got leprosy. There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? It's another great look. Elisha is going to get his servant focused on things above. This is the simplest story, picture story, from New Testament theology right here. And yet I also think it's the single most greatest truth for you and I in our daily walks, to set our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. This is, this is the picture right here. That's the theology. Here's the picture. See, the world doesn't have what we have. But now that Jesus is the Lord of our life, now that you were raised with Christ, the greatest thing you can do for yourself and others in your place, and others in this place when you're there and overwhelmed or for your family, is encourage them to look up 
and seek things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Overwhelmed? Look up. If you don't, it doesn't. the problem never gets fixed. As soon as you start feeling anxious, look up. If you don't, the problem will never be fixed. You just got to look up. It's choice. If you don't look up, you're a control freak. Sorry, I don't know how it's better to say it. But, you know, you just want to be in control. But every time it happens, just look up. You could look up a thousand times a day. And a thousand times a day, run to Jesus, ask him to forgive you, repent and go the other way. And I will guarantee you in his time, you will never freak out about stuff that's happened on the earth again. Ever. But you got to look up. And you got to look up every single time. Not go, oh, Lord, I'm sure you're getting tired of me. No, he wasn't tired of the unjust woman. Uh, he wasn't tired with the unjust judge and the widow. The widow kept coming and the judge goes, man, this lady's going to wear me out. God said, you're not going to wear God out. Trust me, I'm pretty certain of that. And if he is, we're all in big trouble. But to the degree that you and I set our minds on things above and not on this earth, it's to the same degree of how successful you will be as a Christian on this earth. Because then everyone starts looking around and go, that's not humanly possible. Here you are again. Yeah, we see what's going on. That. How come you're so joyful, level, overwhelmed, look up, maxed out, look up, afraid, look up. Pick your poison that wants to rip you off. Looking up will defeat the devil's lies every time. If we have truly died and our lives are now hidden with Christ and God, looking up is the only answer. It's Colossians chapter 3, 1, 2, and 3. It's there. It's the theology. And here's the picture, because that's exactly what Elisha does here. So he answered, do not fear, my young little Padawan, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I mean, this is such an elementary truth for all of our lives. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And I had these words, that he may see even as I see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, just because our God can, behold, the mountain wasn't just full of horses and chariots. Oh, no, it was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You know, these same angels are all around you as well, Christian. The writer of Hebrews says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And they are. So please, let this look here. If you need to, Burn it into your soul so the next time you're backed in your corner, you remember this picture here. And you just look up and you go, oh yeah, God's still in control. So when the Syrians came down to him to seize him, I add, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, I pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of, weird, to the word of Elisha. And, and I think Elisha, I, I, I don't remember, but I, I know it's more than 10. I think it, he does 17 miracles. So this would be another one of his miracles that's recorded in the scripture. Verse 19 is another one of the best licks in the Bible for our everyday walk. Now Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. And the boldness of the Holy Ghost of, of this guy walking out there single-handedly to the entire Syrian army, and yet here he is, he's the best that God can use. So he says to them, here, follow me. I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. Of course, they have no choice, they're blind. But he led them to Samaria. Remember, 12 miles away. 
So it was when they had come to Samaria as inside the city gates, surrounded by soldiers of Israel, of the northern tribes, that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. Without reading ahead, what would you do? Well, if we're going to do what Jesus said, you're not going to do that. <laughs> now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said, Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Now, before Elisha answers, please notice notice what Joram called Elisha. He called him my father. So, man, something's going on in that pagan king up there. But Elisha answered, you shall not kill him. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? My thought was, yeah, the guy probably would, but apparently he wouldn't. Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. This is totally heaping coals of fire on their head right here. So they prepared a great feast for them, their enemies. The, one that was coming, the, the ones that were coming seeking to take Elisha out. Elisha says, look, let's, let's feed them. Let's fill them up. Fill them up. They prayed, prepared a great feast for them, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. It's challenging in this day and age. A lot of haters. That can't be us, ever. Not towards lost people, not towards saved people. Can't. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Wow, they won. <laughs> Yeah, for today anyways. There'll be more next week. But there's a lot of great truth to be mind churching. My encouragement to you, go back and listen to it online sometime. You know, just cycle the lessons through here, man. Great lessons. Great lessons. Father, we're thankful for the pictures that we get to see here. Lord, the truths that are buried in these pictures. And the New Testament theology that brings it all to life for us today. 